quote, in the comic book world, there tends to be an overblown sense of tradition. Bad habits die hard. There are ways I think the form could work more effectively if we lost the bad habits that were created before we were born. End quote. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, superheroes, and tenacity. I'm your host, Jason Nemoore Harden, and on this episode, we explore the superheroes of legendary comic book creator Frank Miller. Frank Miller was born in Olney, Maryland on January 27, 1957, the fifth of seven children. His mother was a nurse and his father a carpenter and electrician. He grew up as an avid reader of comic books in Montpellier, Vermont. A profound turning point occurred for six-year-old Frank in 1963. He was introduced to the superhero Batman and his alter ego, the millionaire Bruce Wayne. He picked up the comic, opened it, and immediately fell in. From that moment on, he began folding over typing paper, stapling it together, and using it to draw his very first comic books. Soon thereafter, he fell in love with crime fiction, anything from Mickey Spillane to Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. Hitchcock and noir movies would also prove to be an inspiration. Now, six years after discovering Batman, at age 12, came yet another major turning point. The comics he had been reading as a kid were all about guys in tights, but then appeared a guy who wore a fedora. He fought crime like they did in Marvel and DC, but he did it in the real world. This was when he was introduced to the spirit. He would later say how it was a funny coincidence that at the same time he discovered girls, he fell out of love with guys in tights. He would, of course, later return to the world of men in tights. Frank never stopped drawing and soon had big dreams of creating books like the ones he so admired. He concluded that there was no way he'd be able to make that a reality in a place like Vermont. The way he saw it, he needed a change of scenery, somewhere bigger, somewhere that in the late 1970s was a much grittier place. New York City. Frank Miller made his way there sometime in the late 1970s, chasing his dream to break into the comic book industry. Now, he was living in a dump of an apartment infested with rats and cockroaches, but at least he was where he felt he needed to be. Now, far from easy to make a living as a comic book artist, he made the ends meet by working as a carpenter's assistant, a skill that one could guess he perhaps picked up from his father. And one story he would later recite recalled a day when he had been hanging doors in a loft. As the story goes, a disgruntled cocaine dealer suddenly appeared. Frank managed to escape the grasp of the mobster with nothing worse than the fear of his life, which, one could surmise, left scars in its own way. That incident and the overall grit of the city would serve to inspire him as he continued to polish his art. Lacking an official portfolio, Frank made his way around town during this time, showing his art in the form of a stack of loose pages held together by twine. 
He tried his luck at DC Comics, where he was told by cartoonist and editor Joseph Orlando, however kindly, that he was talentless and would never succeed in comics. Now, taking in this harsh reality and most likely questioning his decision of having moved to New York City to try his luck at comics in the first place, Miller looked down at his poor excuse for a portfolio only to see a cockroach crawl out from between the pages. Determined to succeed, however, he pushed on and just by luck, or perhaps it was fate, he met legendary comic book artist Neil Adams. Adams made his interest into the comic book scene in the 1960s, his portfolio including work on Superman, Batman, and the Green Arrow, among other characters during the Silver Age of comics. Like Miller would later explore, Adams' art had brought a greater sense of realism to the world of comics, as he wasn't afraid to treat the superhero characters as real people. Shortly after meeting Adams, Miller called him and simply asked, if he didn't mind looking over some of his art. Adams was running a big shop that did advertising at the time and invited him over. This soon developed into a mentor-like relationship. Neil Adams was generous with his time and always made himself available whenever Miller called. He would critique his art and tell him how he could improve, frequently choosing tough love in his feedback. After being told that he was hopeless and that he should move back to Vermont, Adams realized that Miller wasn't about to quit so easily. So he eventually pulled out some tracing paper and began correcting his art, giving him pointers. Eventually, Miller's determination paid off. One day, he arrived at Adams' shop, and Adams looked through his art as he usually did. He immediately made a call to Gold Key Comics and told them that he had someone for them. Just like that, Frank Miller got his first paid gig. He would have his first confirmed credit in writer Wyatt Guion's six-page comic, Deliver Me from D-Day, which was inked by Danny Bulanati and appeared in Weird War Tales issue number 64, released in June 1978. Now, trying to impress them, Miller spent a week drawing every page, which was normally done in a day, keep in mind. It was his first professional job. It was three pages long, and Miller spent three entire weeks on it. It was a start. Though no published credits appear, he is tentatively credited with the three-page story Royal Feast in the licensed TV series comic book The Twilight Zone, issue number 84 from June of 1978. He is also credited with the five-page comic Endless Cloud in the following issue. Other doors would soon open, doors which would lead him to change the world of superhero comics. It didn't take long for him to move his way up to Marvel Comics. His first assignment for them was as a pencil artist on the 17-page story The Master Assassin of Mars, Part 3, in John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 18 from November 1978. Marvel was so impressed that Frank was brought on board as a regular fill-in and cover artist, working on a variety of titles. One job in particular which would be the start of something quite special, 
was the drawing of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, for issues 27 and 28, released in February and March of 1979. These issues guest-starred the character Daredevil, a character who would go on to be a defining character for Miller's career. At the time, sales of the Daredevil title were poor, but Miller still saw potential in the blind protagonist in a purely visual medium and soon took over the writing as well as the penciling. The fact that Daredevil grew up in Hell's Kitchen inspired Miller to open a Pandora's box of all the crime elements he'd long wanted to explore in comics. He hasn't been shy about the fact that he borrowed liberally from Will Eisner's The Spirit and turned Daredevil into a crime comic. Concerning the character, he would say, I thought Daredevil was kind of cool because he couldn't do anything. I mean, he's blind. It wasn't that he could fly. His major power was an impediment. So I was intrigued. When I took over, he was kind of like Spider-Man Light, but I was able to project a lot of my Catholic imagery onto it, and I'd always wanted to do a crime comic. Living in the seedier ends of New York City assisted in his ability to portray the grittiness of that world within the universe of Daredevil. Marvel legend Stan Lee would later praise Miller for his style and tone, saying that he was a big, new, emerging talent. Frank had been fascinated by the Japanese art form called manga for as long as he had been able to get his hands on one of them. He was reading famous manga comics such as Lone Wolf and Cub, even before they were translated to English, only going by the art to understand what was going on in the story. This being an element he incorporated into his own comics, which he would arguably master with many of his later Sin City stories. By incorporating techniques and styles he'd absorbed from reading Japanese manga comics, his style stood out within the American comics industry. Panel arrangements and ninjas were two very important elements in his developing style, a style that began to turn heads. Continuing his ascension, Miller introduced the comic book world to the character Elektra in Daredevil issue number 168 in December 1980. He reasoned that Daredevil had a long line of girlfriends, but what if he had one that could kick his butt? And on top of that, what if Elektra was a bad character? Being a complex character, something which made her stand out from other female characters in comic books, Elektra is very bad, but feels bad about being bad. She displays this by sometimes acting with compassion and other times being a cold-hearted killer. She became the first female anti-hero in comics. As he continued to plot her story, it soon became apparent to Miller that Elektra would have to go. She would have to die. He presented the story to a Marvel editor who, despite not wanting to see her gone, understood how good of a story Miller had concocted and agreed that it was the only logical next step. It would happen in April 1982, issue number 181. Daredevil would sadly lose Elektra, the woman he loved while holding her in his arms. Her death made a huge splash in the world of comics and later became a benchmark. It was clear that Miller wasn't trying to please kids in his stories, but 
Rather, he was creating stories that would be engaging to adults. It paved a new way, one where no one was safe. After writing Wolverine for a large part of what was left of 1982, in July of 1983, Miller found that it was time to keep growing as an artist, which led him to leave Marvel Comics. Moving over to DC Comics, he scored his first creator-owned comic book, a cyberpunk samurai saga he titled Ronin. Taking place in the future containing elements of samurai concepts, Ronin was groundbreaking. It was much more challenging and ambitious than Daredevil, but with that, he learned tremendously from it. Ultimately, Ronin would be a wild mix of Japanese and French art, transforming how comic stories were told, getting darker and more gritty, separating itself from the comics that had come before. For the inking, he hired Lynn Varley, which would mark the start of a long-standing professional relationship. On account of the success stemming from Ronin, DC Comics continued to push Miller on the idea of making a comic about the longtime superhero, none other than Batman. Frank had always wanted to do a comic about Batman, but felt intimidated. He felt the character was too big for him and didn't know if he had the chops needed to tackle such a story. Then one day, a thought occurred to him. He was about to turn 30 years old and realized that Batman had up to that point been permanently 29 years old. Well, he would be damned if he allowed himself to be older than Batman. He began playing around with a story that placed Bruce Wayne in his 50s, coming out of retirement and with a much harder edge than he had displayed earlier. DC loved every single idea he presented to them. The executives at DC expected a similar story like he had done with Daredevil, but what they got was something very different. Miller's Dark Knight was an exploration into the psyche of a middle-aged man, an individual who was deeply disturbed to the point of being willing to put on a costume to fight crime in his crime-infested city of Gotham. He would later give a description of the time period he worked on Dark Knight as one of those times when life felt explosive because work was just flying out of him. Now, Lynn Varley is not only the colorist for the series, but helped him out with the dialogue of the piece as well. Her female voice proved to be essential. Eventually, Lynn and Frank would find love and become husband and wife. The four-issue comic book miniseries that was Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns were released between February and June of 1986. The books explored the notion of the comic book medium being for people of all ages, even older readers. And like so much of what Frank Miller had created before, this development also proved to make waves in the world of comics. As usual, I will leave you with one final quote from one of the defining artists of the comic book industry. The larger-than-life thing is definitely what I'm after. I've always drawn dark stories. Occasionally, I'll try a perfect hero, but it's a real stretch for me. I like them warts and all, and obsessive, and weird. End quote. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemore Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. <laughs>